the way that you pitch to your executive team partnerships and partner programs is going to be completely different depending on the stage that your business is in. You may believe in ecosystems 100%, but your business and your C-suite maybe just isn't there yet. And so that may force you to pitch revenue. Welcome to SaaS Connect, the SaaS Partnership Podcast, brought to you by the Cloud Software Association. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. Hello, everyone in the audience. We have, we're using Zoom webinar today. So table settings, of course, you can fire questions in real time as you want in the Q&A, and we'll get to them when, as soon as we can, usually interleave them as we're talking. I'm Sunir, president of the Cloud Software Association and CEO of AppBind. I am here as your host of SaskConnect one-on-one. It's a conversation between partnership leaders talking about what is a central problem in partnerships. I'm very happy to invite Brian Jambor from Sendoso and Adrian Coborn from Shopify. Thank you. Come here. Thanks, Sunir. Appreciate it. We're talking today about one of the central problems that we all face. How do you get your CEO to invest more in partnerships? Both Brian and Adrian have spent a long career in partnerships. They've started partnership teams from zero, convincing the organizations to invest in themselves and then later on grow their team. And they have both quite interesting and differing stories. The question is, of course, do you lead with revenue or do you lead with your ecosystem strategy? And they're here to tell your stories and compare, contrast, see what worked, what didn't, and what we can learn from each other. So with that, I'm going to kick it off to them to introduce themselves and their own backgrounds. I'll start with you, Brian, and then go to Adrian. Sure. So I head of partnerships over at Sendoso, spent the last close to decade working partnerships. But prior to Sendoso, I was at a company called web.com, where I managed product partnerships across three different divisions. And then prior to that, I was at Yodel, where we spun up a reseller program. And then prior to that, I was at Keep, formerly known as Infusionsoft, where we had affiliates, referral partners, certified partners as well. Spent the last several years and several cycles spinning up partner programs from the ground up at most of the companies that I previously named. Great to be on and sure to appreciate it. And I'm Adrian Coburn. So I'm currently at Shopify. I work with all of our service and agency partners building out that program. Previous to that, about six months ago, three years prior to that, I was at Uberflip. So Uberflip's a marketing technology that works in the B2B space. So they're kind of figuring out what partnerships meant, but uh, ended up really working heavily with their service and agency partners there as well. Before that, I was in a different industry, more travel and tourism, also in partnerships, which interestingly enough, actually has a lot of commonalities, just very different outcomes. That's great. The interesting thing about, I've talked to them both, is that they both had to start partnership teams. Brian at Sendoso has a great story about how he had to set a partnership team up, uh, starting with revenue. And Adrian had to start a partnership team at Uberflip, and that was a different strategy over there. So I'm going to start with Brian because, you know, I think a lot of us feel like the only way to get make any headway in SaaS is to have a revenue story. And that was Brian's story. So Brian, why don't you kick it off? Tell us about your partnership program you set up at Sendoso. Sure. And Sendoso, for those of you that don't know, Sendoso is a sending platform. It allows you to send personalized gifts, branded swag, e-gifts, a bunch of different multiple touch points, if you will, at scale to help you drive additional revenue and opportunities for your team and wow your customers. We kind of looked at the space that we were in. Sendoso plays in the account-based marketing space, and it looked like there was a sizable opportunity to have prospective partners refer their clients over to us where we could generate these experiences for their customers. 
And so the top line was it could look like a moderate revenue play in terms of building up an arm of, call it referral partners that would refer clients to us. That was initial mandate, I'll say, of the million different objectives that a partner program can have. (laughs) Lots of different reasons for spinning up a partner program. Our executive team's primary reason going into it was revenue. Fair enough. And so, Adrian, what was the story at Uberflip? So the initial story at Uberflip actually started out quite similarly, the revenue play, really being able to focus primarily on the agencies that would be bringing us more into the MarTech space, referring our products. What we realized very quickly, though, is that the motivation for these agencies to bring us those customers was not what it needed to be in order to make it actually a holistic program. So we did quickly pivot to more of a services play, bringing in our partners to not only build that revenue stream, but really concentrate on allow Uberflip to be the technology and have other folks come in to really concentrate on how to make it a live product and focus on the services. Well, actually leads to a really good question. Like, so we paint some color, like what would be a typical one of these agencies and really what was motivating? Yeah. So this changed over time, depended, you know, who we were targeting as a customer really depended who, what kind of partners we were working with. But at that beginning stages and still remain consistent throughout, they really ended up being marketing service providers. So people who are working with customers to bring them that holistic strategy from the consulting and strategy perspective, all the way to execution of things like their MarTech staff. So these partners would be working heavily with other marketing technologies, sometimes Sendoso or other companies of the like, to really make that full strategy for the customers they are working with, mostly in the enterprise B2B space. So the motivation for these partners, what we realize is like, They didn't care about little revenue that we were going to give them for that referral commission. That was not at all what was going to motivate them. For them, it was twofold. It was creating services revenue. They're really being able to, for them to create this whole arm for their business to create this whole new path of revenue in the services light that they are already doing. And then the second piece is market expansion. So getting into new customer bases that weren't available to them without a technology like Uberflip. Yeah, that's perfect. So that's different than what you experienced, Brian. Like. Most people probably don't understand the market that you're in. Can you tell a little bit more about who these distributors were, maybe what kind of companies they were, maybe some names, I don't know, and then what were motivating them and how did you fit in? Yeah, I can do that. If you don't mind, I have a quick question for Adrian, though, if that's okay. So one of the things that I found that when I was at Yodel is we tried to spin up a reseller program. And we didn't have a product that would lend itself well to a substantial service model for our resellers. And so what we found was resellers weren't as engaged or motivated to actually participate in our program because there wasn't that long tail service revenue they could gain from it. And one of the lessons learned in that experience was we didn't pivot fast enough from a call it traditional reseller slash certified partner program to more of a referral-based you know, program or, or spinning up some sort of services, things along those lines. So what I was wondering, Adrian, is how long did Uberflip spend working through that, call it reseller model, before there was a the realization that there was the need to pivot to more of a, a service-based focus? Because that, that's one of the challenges, I think, that a lot of partner leaders face is they're concerned to make that shift due to the sizable sunk costs of the previous strategy, even though that may be the right decision to make. 
yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not there anymore, so I can't say this authority, but I'm fairly certain they're still having these conversations. This is not a done deal. This is a continually evolving, see Jillian in the chat over there. It's a continually evolving thing. It's like, this is not something you can have a strategy and stick with. So I think just to point that out, this is, I, when I left, it wasn't a perfectly packaged service program, but I think the need and the, the motivation was an understanding that could continue and continue to be built on throughout time. So the other thing to point out, we really didn't consider our partners resellers. What we considered them was marketing service providers or even value-added referral partners. Not all forms are meant to be resold. Some are too complex. Some of them have a lot of other aspects that need to be considered about selling into the enterprise place. It's not easy transaction. So we didn't want to give that control away. It was something we really wanted to own, especially as we were a growing business. So really what we were doing was working alongside our partners on the services arm. The other thing to consider is there's two types of services these people can provide. One is a platform-specific kind of launched package. It's directly applicable to the platform itself. And the second is ancillary services. You know, not every, maybe at Yodel, they wouldn't like launch the platform or work specifically in the platform, but I would absolutely bet there's some sort of strategy consulting ancillary service that the partners could offer in tandem with the platform. Yeah. And that was it, Yodel. That was the hardest problem because it was such simple software that the, the consulting was nearly non-existent, right? It was so simple to set up and utilize. It just, it wasn't complex. So one of the things that we recognized at Sendoso is when we kind of looked at our market and we recognized that account-based marketing is a place where we fit in, in terms of companies that are doing account-based marketing or account-based everything tend to need a direct mail strategy to supplement those activities. And so they use Sendoso. But in that, we initially started going after mid-market and enterprise account-based marketing agencies, agencies that consult in ABM. And one of the things we found through that initial strategy was we became one of many arrows in the agency's quiver that they could utilize with the client. But there wasn't enough tight affinity in terms of service, right, or products or things that they could offer to our customers that made that relationship more valuable than any other relationship they had with any other SaaS company. And so we started to explore additional aspects of the market, and we recognized that there were a sizable amount, $22 billion worth of promotional product distributors in North America. And so when we started looking at that, TAM, and we recognized that the top 40 distributors make up 80 plus percent of that $22 billion in revenue, we, we said, okay, this seems like that could be a really good market for us to get into as far as partnerships are concerned. So now we partner with companies like State Promotional Products or major distributors, Brand Via, Jack Nadell International. These are companies that have relationships with suppliers in China, place the order for the swag, and then drop ship it wherever you want them to. In our case, they drop ship it to one of our warehouses where we intake it, inventory it for the customer, and then the customer can one-off send that out through their CRM or marketing automation program and then get a feedback loop of ROI on that spend, which was a big gap for that industry because they don't have the ROI component of their offering in terms of how companies are justifying the promotional product spend that they're essentially laying out to their customers, prospects, employees, et cetera. So as soon as we made that 
shift, which took around seven months for us to go from these kind of mid-market ABM marketing agencies to these promo product distributors, there's a sizable difference in not only the quality of accounts that we were being referred, but the quantity of accounts we were being referred by that partner base. It was a very critical pivot for us in terms of our partner evolution. Were most of your opportunities coming from these distributors ended up being agencies or were they a mix of agencies and end customers as well? The bulk of the distributors are referring end customers. It's very rare that a distributor will refer an agency because they offer, many of them offer agency-like services. So they have a design team and, and things along those lines. So making that pivot, I'd venture to guess that those partners that you had initially sought out, those more B2B agencies, were still interested. And you know, there's a reason why they went to you in the first place. How did you make that pivot with them? And you know, what kind of balance did you strike out to go through with both initiatives? Yeah, so we went from a one-to-one support model to a one-to-many support model from a partner account management standpoint. So we started to take our promo product companies and we would have one-on-one QBRs and conversations with them and a partner account manager. And then we kind of would aggregate the communication for the ABM agencies along with the support, right? And so it's the way that we've been able to scale it and accommodate both groups while both valuable in our ecosystem, of course. There's one that just has a little bit tighter affinity to what we're doing than the other. There's a question from Jeff Matan along these lines, but I kind of like want to change a little bit to meet these different circumstances. So his question is, I mean, I understand his context because I've talked to him, but he says, your competitors have years of experience building partner programs. You're likely the first partnership pro- person in your company. Uh, th- these other companies have been building partner programs or focusing on the partner's growth because they realize they sell their own stuff. They're selling their own services. After all, your partner doesn't care about you. This is a fundamental principle of partnerships. They care about their own sales. Like they want the customer themselves. So what was the first three things you did to establish a beachhead, but because you have different contexts, it'd be kind of interesting to split because you did agencies, but put that aside on the Ascendosa side, what these re- what these DISTI platforms wanted from you. And Adrian, the same thing as you changed agencies, it sounded like you had to do a lot of learning there. It wasn't like a one, two, three off the top of your head. It sounded like it took some time to get there. So I mean, actually, I'll start with Adrian because I think for Jeff, in his case, it's probably more relevant. So what did it take for you to find the first three things that really matter? Sure. Can you define a beachhead for me? <laughs> I think he means getting any traction with the agencies. So you need to get, you need to start a fire, at least an ember of a partner program, right? So getting mm-hmm. your first agency, as everyone knows, you started marketing with marketing agencies, getting your first marketing agency to work on your platform can be difficult. So, so what did you end up finding worked? Sure. I think biggest one, lowest barrier to entry possible. So a lot of programs you'll see out there, there's a cost to join or a cost to be trained, those elements. And then sometimes that's very valid. But I'd say when you're first getting started, you need to make it easy and you almost need to invest more in them than they are in you. So we, we put a lot of effort into getting these people trained and proficient in our platform, um, being the experts, being kind of that, that extension of our team. There's a lot of work that has to be done there. So you do have to make an investment in that. So yeah, keeping various entry low and being okay to make that upfront investment is definitely a big one. Second, just like finding out what their motivators are. Maybe you have a product that actually can be resold quite easily. So they can do a big volume play and all they need to do is sell a hundred copies of your platform and they'll, that'll be enough revenue for them. Maybe that's adequate. 
So finding out those motivators early on is going to be really, really helpful. And I guess third is just like matching those motivators with your internal motivators. So really having to balance CEO expectations of what your program is going to bring in. So like what gaps can our partners fill and make sure that those motivators match with the partner. So it's like, it has to be a win-win. It can't be, this is what our company needs, but no partner is going to get any value from it. And it can't be the value only coming from the partner, nothing to your organization. And so, yeah, just finding those gaps in your internal organization and making sure they meet the motivators of the partners that you're working with. Awesome. And then Brian, like, what did you find these DISTI platforms? Because these are not, they have agency services, but they're offering more of a, yeah, and you're muted, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the goal of these distributors is to sell more swag, distribute more swag. And so we do several things to promote them across our customer base and, and generate opportunities for them. We mark them as the distributor of record for anybody that they bring to us. We have a partner directory that we feature them in. And then we provide them with opportunities to get in front of our teams, right, in a narrow basis. But what's interesting when you're starting to build a, let's say you're building a, to answer Jeff's question, if you're building a program and you're going up against a company that has a very mature partner structure to it, partner ecosystem to it, right, or partner programs to it, the benefit that you have is flexibility. The larger your programs get, the more Adrian and I were talking about this the other day, the more black and white you have to be in terms of the enablement that you offer to your partners, the reciprocity that you can provide, things along those lines. When you're small, you can oftentimes get the resources to do that for a handful of partners fairly quickly. And so lean heavily into that. They may not be getting the resources that they want from their current relationship because that current relationship is too big or that specific partner is not big enough or not strategic enough, or the case may be. So you do have some advantages there. I would lean heavily into that and create that a la carte list of reciprocity that you can then double down on with those partners as you start to kind of build out that structure. Actually, Jamie Ficillo from MindBody has a good question about this. This is something that comes up a lot. This is just for Adrian, but I think both of you could answer this. One of the challenges we all experience is that partners want visibility and access to our large customer base. How do you scale the visibility of agency partners to your customers without spamming your customers? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And it's a hard one to manage. I'll give two-pronged answer on that one because it's very different to Brian's earlier point, depending on the scale of your program. So Uberflip is an answer. At Shopify, it's a much different answer because of the scale of the amount of partners we have. So at Uberflip, we had a, it was small and mighty. The amount of partners we had was not unscalable to be able to go out and actually introduce them to customers. That paired with the fact that it was a very hands-on sale. So I was extremely integrated into the sales team as were our partners. So that kind of one-to-one -one interaction where I'd be directly introducing a partner to a sales rep to work on an account, to be able to embed their services in from the get-go. That was a lot easier to do because of that scaled down nature of it. Where it becomes a bit more challenging is at a place like Shopify where there are thousands of partners and thousands of customers where it's not such a hands-on sale, where it's harder to do that kind of one-to-one -one integration. So that's when you really have to, to Brian's earlier point, look at the black and white. Like this is what we can promise you when you are a certain level. Once you give X back to our company, we can give Y back to you. So really being able to have that kind of tiering system and different levels, promises, benefits, like gives and gets carved out from the get-go is going to be extremely helpful for promising and not over-promising to your partners. So some different tangible things you could look at 
partner directories are awesome. That's, you know, the biggest kind of scalable thing you could do. All of our events, we made sure our partners were very, very invested in both from the hosting and speaking, uh, running their own workshops off the side of the event, um, being able to get involved with our lead list, that type of thing is going to be extremely important as well. And just making really sure and clear to them that it's their job as partners to develop their own business development strategies. They can't rely only on you for that kind of lead execution. They have to have their own biz dev strategies to be able to address your market as well. So yeah, two things there, making sure it's black and white, clear from the beginning what the gives and gets are. And second, making it really clear up front that the responsibility can't be entirely on you to get involved in the ecosystem. Yahoo does a really good job of that, in my opinion, is Salesforce. Salesforce has a huge, huge partner ecosystem, and they just recently rolled out, relatively recently, rolled out a point-based system based on a multitude of different activities that you have to go through in order to get additional reciprocity from them from a marketing standpoint for their customers or you know, preferred placement in the app exchange, et cetera. So you know, it, it spans from how many people do you have in your organization that are certified in the platform to marketing have you done to promote Salesforce, how much revenue you're driving to them, et cetera. To your point, Adrian, one of the things that I found is sometimes if you put a moderate to high dollar amount to that opportunity to get in front of customers, you can do your team a substantial service by helping them weed through those requests, right? If you have a lot of small and mid-market marketing agencies and you say, yep, here's the criteria. On top of that, it's a $10,000 investment usually you'll weed out the majority of them that, that wouldn't want to take that serious anyway. And so it actually helps your teams a lot easier conversation to have than them to say, I don't know, let me check. Let me see who I know that friend of a friend, maybe I can like squeak this in. There's an interesting contrast in what you're saying. Not like I don't have opinions about this, which I do, but like, here's the contrast. So at the beginning, Adrian said, don't do that. Don't put prices on your partnership program. And then at the end, you're saying do. So what point does the bronze, silver, gold tiering system makes sense. And of course, Salesforce is the second biggest B2B SaaS company on the planet. They can handle do anything they want. And Shopify is no slouch either. I was just talking to someone there. There's one partnership person for every billion dollars of market cap at Shopify, apparently. So there's 100, 100 partnership people there. Pretty good. Pretty good team. Yeah. You have resources. But like with a smaller company or someone who's starting out, what point do you flip it over to pay to play? How big is the need for your organization? Like. Uberflip, the need for services was huge. We were losing money by not investing in it through our partner ecosystem. We couldn't scale it out as fast as it needed to be scaled out. You know, it, for us, it was like a business critical decision to be able to find a way to fill that gap. If you have the luxury of having, a, you know, you have some leverage there, partners are asking you to be involved. They're trying to get involved for their own gain more than your, your gain. And I think that's where you can be a bit more picky about the barrier to entry and at a certain point, yes, you need to make that barrier to entry higher if you're investing a lot in them. If you're not investing a lot in them, though, if it's automated programming, if, if it's not one-to-one partner relationships and partner-managed relationships, then then yeah, then you can add a cost on it or, or not. And I think you have a lot more flexibility when that scale comes in. The, Q, the questions are more interesting than our breeds. We'll just go off-roading to the Q&A, if that's all right. right. That's, that's a fine that. All right. So here's one from Robin Yerkes. So either of your companies have significant integrations because we're talking about, we've been talking about agencies, but 
actually your, your DISTI relationship is more, less, more of an integration kind of experience resell because it's like a platform play. I think it applies to bringing in an ecosystem of software partnerships. Do you have significant integrations and did your service partner program include SIs, system integrators, integration services? Well, it's interesting. So did you end up using agencies to deliver part of your integration solution? Starting with you, Adrian. Yes, definitely. I think having that as an aspect of what any technology platform needs some version of that, whether it's a simple, so a good example is Sendoso and Uberflip together are technology partners. We don't actually, to my knowledge, have an integration together, or maybe we do now, we don't know what I left. But in theory, there's a lot of strategy that needs to go in about how you use the technologies together in a full stack of marketing. So you need two, two types of partners and uh, services partners for that kind of thing. One is the physical integration for people who literally need that API connector. And then the second is more of a strategy consulting approach to it, where it's looking at it at the big picture. Yeah, keep that really well early on, in my opinion. So they had a whole program of what they called developer partners. And you could get a, there was a test that was involved to make sure that you understood not only the platform, but you understood the API, you understood the ecosystem in terms of the data integrations that were available. And then you were tested on your proficiency with the API in order to get certified as a certified keep developer, if you will. And then those developers were ones that when clients said, hey, I want to integrate Keep with XYZ software, internal customer success teams would point them to those specific partners and say, here's a list of integrators that we know that we've certified that could do that for you. We recommend these two or three, and then you know, here's their contact information. You can do some diligence, go with who you want. That, that ended up working out really well. That's awesome. Do you know how they actually went about certifying those people? A really hard thing to certify on. Yeah, it really is. So we had a developer that was running the program as a developer partner manager that had a lot of development slash engineering experience. And he created a test based on our API that through an LMS that would say, okay, if you're trying to query XYZ, which endpoint in the API would you use? And so you'd have to choose it multiple choice. And occasionally there would be a box to essentially divulge, okay, here are the Here's the reason why. That was kind of the, the first step of that test. The second step of that test is we gave them a sandbox, a sandbox keep it. Well, I have a question for you then from Nick Thomas. How long did it take you to start driving real revenue from your agencies? Well, that's an interesting question because we're talking about now service gaps. And then this is part of the interesting story. So you didn't start off with a revenue story. So what, what happened? How did your agency program progress? Did it ever end up making dollars and cents? It definitely makes dollars and cents, but it's probably not as scalable as initially they'd set out for it to be. You know, like a CEO's dreams of what a partner program can do. You see like that hockey stick approach of like just absolutely generating revenue left, right, and center. And I think the reality is it's a slow burn. So yes, it did start generating revenue, but I think that to have that really, really scalable approach where you have the whole ecosystem in itself depends heavily on how much you're investing into it. If you're bootstrapping, get ready for a couple deals a year. But if you're going further than that, then I think that's when you can get a bit more, I get a bit more of a flown strategy out of it. So years, definite years, where once again, going back to the question of scale versus small, it's like, if you're getting it to a point like what Shopify has, where you have an army of partners out there on your behalf, then you're going to have a revenue stream that's really, really consistent and does have that hockey stick approach. But yeah, to get to that point, it's years of investment. So 
we, where we started to see pickup is when partners started making revenue off the services, became an integrated part of their business. They were an absolute uber flip partner at that point. And so had that invested interest in our company where before they could have taken any platform and plugged it in for what we were doing. Yeah, I give a shout out to my friend, Alex Glenn at Partner Programs at IO. This is like his church of Alex Glenn is because he's talking from the marketing agency side is that's mm-hmm. actually turns out to be when the things flip over, when they start seeing when they make their own revenue and you can prove it to them. And shout out to my besties, Microsoft and Salesforce, because they actually do this more aggressively. Microsoft has been tracking dollars of revenue of their service partner for every dollar Microsoft's made since 2010 and their IDC report. And Salesforce is now tracking that. They're doing four. Well, Microsoft, their partners make $9 over $1 they make. So that's a trillion dollar ecosystem, wow. and uh, which is half of the entire like software partnership ecosystem, which is $2.3 trillion. And then the Salesforce is doing $4.50 roughly, according to Forrester, I think, or IDC. So, I mean, this is an interesting number. Did you ever end up like interviewing and finding out what, what, how much money they were making in turning into case studies at Uberflip? Not in a way that I could speak to. Over beers, I heard some numbers, but nothing that we really substantially looked at. Brian, I'm so glad we can see your actual background now. I thought for sure those photos were definitely on the wall. <laughs> I have to thank my marketing team for their, uh, their <laughs> design. Now you know why I'm so sharp, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. We were just talking about this right before the call about how we've all had kind of experiences, but anyways. All right. Stephen Larson has a question back to the point. So why invest in partnerships to build ecosystems? How do you sell the value of an ecosystem beyond generating leads and gross revenue? And what KPIs do you recommend? Well, I'm going to put this to you, Brian, because like this is right in the hot seat for what happened to your partner program. So you start with revenue. What happened there? Yeah, it, we started with revenue and, and as we progressed, realized that we could build a sizable moat if we turned that into an ecosystem. And so we started to kind of figure out, okay, well, what would that ecosystem look like? Part of it is integrations, part of it were these distributors. And then the other part that was really interesting was the, we call them merchant partners, the perishable goods, cookies, cupcakes, brownies, companies that people are able to send through our platform. And we were able to actually start getting exclusives with those companies to be on our network. And so now we have close to 200 partners between distributors, promo product distributors that are recommending us to their clients, between the perishable good companies that we also get recommendations from them for their corporate clients that want to place orders through like a Salesforce or Marketo and get that ROI visibility as opposed to through them directly. And then of course, the integrations. And so it ended up, call it, somewhere between the nine to 14 month mark transforming from a, what I would call traditional revenue only driven partner program to a very holistic ecosystem. How do we build a mode around our organization through partners? One of the interesting things you said in the story, which I didn't get the, when we did the pre-interview, is you got to the distis by actually talking to your agency partners. So you kind of like flew through the ecosystem to even find these relationships. Is that not that right? Is that what happened? Yeah, or- yeah, you're absolutely right. We had an agency partner that essentially kind of explained to us the ecosystem that we were in. We're kind of interesting. <laughs> you, you think you have a grasp on the industry, and then you have somebody that you talk to that's been in the industry for 20 years, and they say, no, 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 it's not like that. It's like this. And you say, oh, that's interesting. This particular individual ended up introducing us to distributor network that we candidly didn't know really existed, at least the scope of it you know, that existed. I mean, 20,000 of these distributors in North America, again, 20 plus billion dollars a year in revenue between all of them. 
So we actually went to the conference. There's an industry trade association and all sorts of other things around you know, this whole distributor ecosystem. And so we started to get really involved in that. But yeah, it was through one of our agency partners that gave us a little more intel than we had previously. So then tell me, well, this, this is like part of the, the core story. This What happened next, how you brought this idea and formulated, you had to bring it up to the board, right? Or investors, like who did you bring it up to get invested? Yeah, in? so we had multiple conversations with the executive team and the board. So we were going through, we were still very early in our partner program. I was the first dedicated to hire with partner program experience at Sendoso that we brought on, right? And so there were still a lot of things to figure out, but there was such a drive to go after ABN agencies that we had to do a lot of diligence around what the total addressable market was in these distributors, what kind of logos they were actually courting in terms of their customer base and really paint the picture of what the opportunity was. And could we do it at scale? Were there enough of them where it made sense? And so we had to do a lot of diligence on that end and then present that to the board and the executive team to get buy-in to say, yep, that sounds like the right direction. Let's make the pivot. Let's have you guys go after them aggressively. We've been doing that since. It's been very beneficial. So what, where were the KPIs that you promised them? Like, how did you, what, what were you tracking? How did you explain it to them in a way that they could understand it? Yeah, so what we looked at is the total addressable market that that industry was generating. And then we started looking at the top 40 distributors that we knew that we could pick off. That we had some preliminary conversations with the agency that I mentioned to you previously new people of those organizations and made some introductions to us. And so we committed to procuring several of those specific partners. So that was the deliverable. Could you get a handful of these top 40 distributors in your ecosystem? And then from there, it was setting realistic expectations around, okay, we're going to be tracking the leading indicators of, we call them partner qualified leads, which are referrals from those organizations, and then partner influence leads which are referrals from those organizations that are already in our pipeline, right? And as we track that, we committed to modeling that out over the course of a six-month period and then reassessing at the end of six months. So we didn't commit to revenue because we didn't know how those leads would convert in the pipeline, how long it would take those partners to onboard of the partners that we ink. Sometimes a top 40 distributor looks great on paper, but you'll find a partner that produces way more value for you that's doing significantly less. Those are just a lot of things you don't know until you're actually in the weeds and have a little more maturity in that strategy. So those were the KPIs. Again, PQLs, we call them PILs, partner influence leads. And then we track that against new revenue for partners. And then the tertiary component was how many of those partners can we recruit on a monthly basis, right? Are we actually getting traction in that ecosystem? You did something similar. You started off looking at sales lead, changed to a services play, and then went back to SQLs, Seth, right? Adrian? Yeah, I would say SQLs have never been the main driver for Uberflip's partner program, but it absolutely it does influence it, especially when it comes to more of the technology partner side of things. So you know, having the right people to go to market with from a marketing perspective when you're looking at SQLs or whatever you want to call them, you need it. But I think for the intention that we wanted these partners for, it was way past SQL. They come to you at absolutely opportunity qualified, like they're moving forward very, very quickly. So it was less of a concentration on lead quantity and more on quality and how quickly can these be expedited through the sales funnel. What were the metrics that you were tracking? Like 
to report up, but why was your company willing to continue building out the partner team? They were over the already responsible revenue ARR at the end of the day. I reported to at one point marketing, at one point sales, and then COO, and then back to sales. And the one thing that remained consistent no matter who I was reporting to was the revenue component that was attached to my job. The rest of it changed, like whatever was the company. <laughs> KPI changed depending where we sat in the organization, the value that we were driving. But that was the one thing at the end of the day they really cared about. So all decisions had to lead back to that. You definitely get into different territory when you start looking at different business models and different reasons for having partnerships. But yeah. You guys are killing me. This is supposed to be a debate with your partnership people. You decided to agree with each other. You just said revenue and Brian, you just said ecosystem. So well, I think if most partnership people could, could say, like, if you're not bringing revenue, there's not going to be a lot to hold your team there for long. And if you don't have an ecosystem, I, I, you don't have a strategy. That's right. Well, there you go. I, I will tell you, one of the most interesting experiences I've had in partnerships is when I was at web.com and I was owning product partnerships. And the KPI was not revenue at all. It was cost savings due to features that we would add into the platform from a partner that we wouldn't have to maintain in terms of existing features that we were doing ourselves. It was a very interesting time in my career. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a revenue-based quota. There he goes. There you go. I think we can assume what he was saying was... Yeah. Well, one of the it was, things it was an I, outlier. It wasn't an outlier. One of the things that I just pulled the threads together is depending on the part of the customer funnel you guys were talking about, the business drivers for that moment in time for the customer is solved with a different set of partners. And that leads to a strategy. So for the marketing agencies, you were doing a service implementation gap where you didn't have the in-house professional services. So you use these agencies to accelerate that. And then there was a quid pro quo, which helped you grow revenue through them. But you're basically handing them first services because that's something you were unable to do. And for the distributor case at Sendoso, that is like the top of the funnel tied to the functional use cases. And at web.com, that would be around the product experience, the product use case doesn't go. Is it, does that track with your own experiences? That the, it really depends on what part of the customer experience and what part of the journey you're in your partnership strategies have changed. Yeah, I, could- I think it's all dependent on the stage of business that you're in. If you're an earlier organization in terms of your uh, product market fit and you know customer adoption, things along those lines, revenue, a good friend of mine once told me, revenue cures all ills. So if you're bringing in revenue, you get budget, you get resources, yeah. you get all sorts of things. It's certainly more heavily weighted on an earlier stage organization that is really figuring out product market fit compared to a later stage organization that maybe has figured that out and is now trying to figure out how to get that late majority and scale. And so I think there is this component of how sophisticated and what stage is your business in? And it can often have a very close impact and tie to how your partner programs need to be positioned and structured. Yeah, very true. The things that Shopify care about is very, very different than the things that someone like Uberflip would care about uh, just at the stage of their journey and the amount that they need to be integrated into the different strategies of the different players that are out there, be it technology, agencies, alliance, whatever it is. So yeah, that absolutely changes over the scale of the company. It does mean that the way that you pitch to your executive team, partnerships and partner programs is going to be completely different depending on the stage that your business is in. You may believe in ecosystems 100%, but your business and your C-suite 
maybe just isn't there yet in terms of what the greatest need is today. And so that may force you, while you know that ecosystems is the right play, to pitch revenue in terms of the primary objective of partnerships. Whereas if that's, if it's services, because you have high churn and low NPS, you need to figure some things out there, then, you know, maybe you're pitching a little bit differently. But, you know, I think a lot of it, again, goes back to the stage that your business is in. I'm going to throw this question out. It's a bit of a from left field, given what we've been talking about, but I think it's very relevant from Miwa, you know, and this will be our last question, but it kind of ties it together. So the question is, do you have experience building revenue via tech- technology partners? And so what successful part- programs did you use to streamline to generate more leads and revenue? But this is a good question because it takes the ecosystem strategy, which is that mostly tech partners are building out the whole product solution and turning it into a revenue solution. And if you want to do an ecosystem strategy, means that you need to be able to pitch that knowing you have the confidence to get the revenue out of it at the end of the day. So what would you say you have this ecosystem of partners? What would be your strategy to pull revenue out of them? I'll put it to each of you. Adrian, I'll start with you. Sure. I think it depends on the partner. So Uberflip and Zendoso. We are similar size, similar target market. Neither one of us is like the big brother. It's like, you know, let's go at this together. So in that case, something like account mapping is very effective where you can almost do a joint solution sell where it's very equal playing ground. You can go for it. And even maybe it is getting an agency partner involved where they're the one packaging together the two technologies and you're bringing that forward to the market. That account mapping, getting your reps involved with each other, even when just at a conference, like getting all the sales reps into one room so they can chat about like who they're speaking to at the conference. Hey, can you introduce me to that person? You know, that is can be very, very effective with complementary technologies where that changes is for big brothers. So if you're tapping into a different ecosystem. So in Uberflip's world, people like Marketo and Oracle and Salesforce, these are all people who have their own programs where you have to play by their rules. So there's absolutely a revenue component to be played there, but you, like I just said, have to play by their rules. So that could be hosting events with them. There still could be some account mapping components, but it's usually like on a isolated rep rep basis. So being able to find one rep that's very open to that concept of kind of joint selling and doing it at a bit more of a, less of a partnership level at the top, but more of a partnership level with like the amigos that are actually doing the work. So yeah, kind of two different strategies there with the bigger guys, play into their marketing programs as much as you can. It might be more of an SQL approach with the larger ones, where it's more of a qualified opportunity with the complimentary. Awesome. What was your, how's been your experience? Yeah, very similar. So I will tell you that if you're not, they'll do a little, uh, shameless plug here for a company that I'm not affiliated with whatsoever, but wholly believe in what they're doing and think that they're fantastic. If you're not doing account mapping with Crossbeam, you're not doing account mapping right, candidly. Crossbeam is a great tool that we use for account mapping. Just phenomenal team over there. And we've actually been able to recognize a sizable amount of revenue from our technology partnership where we've an account mapping, not only from a partnership to partnership person level where, hey, you know, where are your top 10 accounts? These are mine. Can your CSM teams make intros to our AEs or whatever the case may be? But literally getting the reps involved at the rep level to where they feel comfortable reaching out to each other to get account insight. That's been critical for us. And secondarily to that, I think there's, if you start thinking through the like a services strategy, right? If you have service partners that you're trying to do that at scale, there were some interesting things that Keep did. Keep was onboarding all of their customers in-house and eventually flipped the switch and then had all of their partners do all of their onboarding. 
right? As part of that process, there's a significant amount of savings that happened for the organization. One of the things that was deliberated, they ended up not doing, but talked about potentially charging partners to onboard customers for that opportunity to onboard the customer. And that's another way that you can generate revenue from if you have a service-based partner organization to give them that opportunity to get a new customer, right? Which is nothing more than a customer acquisition cost to the partner, right? And then you're getting, with any luck, a little bit better service, more customer-tailored response because the partner can take that time on a one-to-one basis with those individual customers, whereas your team is trying to have to do things at scale. I will mention one resource we have, the Cloud Software Association. We have the integrated partnership checklist that they community has put together as well. So if you're doing technical partnerships, that's like an incredible list of like every single thing you could possibly do with a partnership tech partner to get results out of it. So I will send that out into the general room later, uh, Miwa, for you. So last thoughts. I mean, we have a couple of minutes left. It's like, this is an interesting conversation. It's very dynamic. I really appreciate you guys doing it. So thank you very much. And thank you audience for the questions. Those are amazing. So we've been talking for an hour here. You guys talked before. You had different strategies. What are your conclusions? Like, what did you learn about partnerships by talking to the other person living from their experience? And, you know, Adrian, you look like you have an answer. So I'll throw it to you. Well, I was pondering some answers. I don't know that I have an answer. <laughs> I think the big, yeah, biggest thing I've learned from Brian here is just like big pivots. We made pivots and I have Shopify makes pivots and Uberflip makes pivots. But the approach that Sendoso made with pivoting to more of a distributing model is like a really large pivot and being able to kind of balance automating an entire section. When you're a company that's at a size where you can't do it all, you do have to pick where you're investing your time and money. So I think I just really appreciated learning a little bit more about how to make those decisions and you know how to pivot. And Brian, how, what do you conclude? What did you learn from talking to Adrian? Yes, as your partnerships are fairly young, so to speak, you have the flexibility to tailor the program and, and tailor the reciprocity and deliverables to the partner. Or if the, maybe not even young, if it's a very strategic partnership, you also have that same ability. But the larger your ecosystem is, the more black and white you have to be, the more intentional time you have to spend on dialing down exactly what the rules are so that you can scale. And it was a nice reminder of different stages that partner programs are at and the, the flexibility or lack thereof that can, can and should be offered to partners as the ecosystem kind of continues to expand and grow. Yeah, that's awesome. I like to say both of you are on Slack and our CSA Slack. So if you have further questions, you can follow up with them there. I'd like to thank you again. It's really great. I really appreciate it. And we'll be sharing this recording afterwards with the audience. And thank you for your questions as well. as very, very lively discussion. Great. Thanks, Nair. Thank you, Adrian Sunir. Thanks, everybody. If you like this and want more great insights on software partnerships, you've got to rate, like, and subscribe. And join us at thecloudsoftwareassociation.com. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. We'll see you on the next episode.